Hi, I'm David Miller. Hi, I'm Michael Rasmussen. Together, we both ride bikes. In fact, that's how we met each other. But on the surface, we thought that was our only common denominator. But then we got to know each other better and found out that we have a lot more in common than cycling. We also discovered in that process that we're not the only people like that. And that's essentially what this off-bike podcast is all about. I didn't feel like I was in control of my personal narrative, who I was and who I was portraying myself to be to all of these different people who follow me. I'm finding now that I spend a lot of time in clothes that I haven't washed. So I'm more interested in things that like really don't smell bad. With art, I felt like finally I had this thing where there wasn't a finish line at the end. There wasn't, I wasn't on a time schedule. Welcome to Off Bike. Hello, Mikael. Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm fine. I am out of lockdown, you know, but I heard that you're still there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're going to be... St- we're entering to phase three next week. Uh, it, it is opening up. It's starting to become more normalized. Uh, but one of the, the positives of the the last three weeks of the, the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown is the fact that some people who are here who weren't supposed to be here, and one of those people is Taylor Finney. He came over here for three weeks in March and has been stuck here since then, visiting his uh, girlfriend, Kasia, who's a professional cyclist. And now he's going to stay here till November. And I thought during that time, I've known Taylor for many years and you and I have spoken about him. And I thought, you know what, I'll hit him up. Let's talk to him and let's do an off-bike podcast with Taylor. Perfect. And tell me a little bit about Taylor Finney. Taylor's a, you know what, he's one of the last great characters, I think, of professional cycling, especially American professional cycling. He, his pedigree is, is off the grid. His father, Davis Finney, won, was the first American to win a Tour de France stage. His mother, Connie Carpenter at the time, uh, is one of the... She was a speed skater, then became a professional, uh, professional cyclist. They both won medals at the Los Angeles Olympics. Uh, so he comes from that background, and yet he didn't start cycling until he was later, because it wasn't necessarily a sport that he was interested in. I met him in 2007, in November, December, in Boulder, Colorado, where, where he's from, where he lives, uh, because he was on the junior team of the team that I part owned at the time, Slipstream. And so we met each other, and I, I kind of semi-mentored him for a bit when he was moving into track cycling and doing these different things, and then we, we grew apart, and it's kind of full circle now, because I when we went for this bike ride which is how we we what we've done with this for the listener to understand there is uh, two different interv- interviews there's Mikael from Copenhagen and there's me from um uh, atop a mountain well a, I say a mountain a big hill in Girona <laughs> felt like a mountain <laughs> and we rode up there on mountain bikes and stopped up there and chatted and then I actually put you kind of in a bit of a weird situation and Taylor was up for it, thank you. And you had a completely kind of cold call with him. And what was it like for you? I love that call. I mean, we had a um, really interesting conversation because it turns out that he has transitioned his life from being very much a professional athlete to becoming much more interested in arts and music going on camping with his bikes and gravel biking and things like getting back into nature and so on. And it's almost like he's been in this transition 
which is very much the subject matter, I think, of off-bike in a way. So he's, he's transitioned his life from bike to off-bike in a way that seems to me to be very interesting and very harmonious in a way, not in a conflicted way. And um, so I was really interested in knowing, like, how do you go from being young and sitting in the peloton, like in a super competitive, disciplined um, sport, and then all of a sudden, you know, doing a little bit of painting, a little bit of music, um, enjoying life, going off into the into nature with your bike. Like, what, how how did that happen? When I lived in Italy, I first moved there when I was 12 with my family. I went to an Italian school. I didn't understand anything that people were saying. So I ended up just doodling most of the time. My real adolescent dream was to become a professional athlete. Both of my parents, they're Olympic medalists in cycling. And so it was just kind of like, seemed like it was my natural path or progression that I wanted to follow in their footsteps. Like any child who comes from parents who are kind of in the public eye and um, supportive in that way. I became a professional athlete eventually, and uh, I did that through through cycling. I first wanted to be a, a soccer player, but um, four or five years into my professional career, I suffered a really devastating crash uh, and broke my left leg. The doctors weren't sure if I was going to be able to walk again, let, it go, let alone ride a bike again, but I was very naive and I was like of course I'm gonna come back and and race my bike it took 16 months uh, from that that moment uh, to then come back and race and with and in that period I discovered painting and I was reconnected with all of these different drawings that I made as a as a child and uh, I was reintroduced to artists like Jean-Michel Basquiat, who I loved as a child, funnily enough, uh, we had this um, this book of poems uh, with Maya Angelou poems and Basquiat paintings. I was just like, huh, somehow I understand this. Like, I feel like I understand this chaotic artwork and I'm really inspired to um, sort of copy it and, and, re- and, and do it in, in my way because I had the time and I had the I had the, the the finances to go out and buy big pieces of canvas and buy like oil paint sticks which are kind of expensive and uh, just really like experiment fully experiment with art and I, I come from such a regimented background of either you're successful or or you you've failed you know you've reached your target or you've you come below your target. And with art, I felt like finally I had this thing where there wasn't a finish line at the end. There wasn't, I wasn't on a time schedule. I could just like sit down on the ground or staple a piece of canvas to the wall and just like go crazy on it. And it didn't have to look like anything. It didn't have to be anything in, spe- in particular. Yeah, I really just fell in love with that that creative process and I developed a real affinity for or a real desire to be able to express myself better and better through different mediums. 
But did you already do that when one, I mean, I don't know what life is like when you're a professional cyclist, really, but I imagine it's very time pressured and disciplined and stressed in a way. It's interesting because I, when I think back and even when I see like my girlfriend now or I speak with athletes now, there's so much time that I spent and that so many of my um, co-workers spent just being bored because you like you go out and you take all of your energy that you have and you you expend it on your bicycle and then you end up coming back home and you have to spend the rest of the day doing something but you really don't have the energy or the attention to be able to devote that time to something creative or you don't feel like you want to learn anything because you derive all of your satisfaction from just what you do in training and if you do your training then like boom okay you're done but the amount of time I've spent in a hotel room just literally like killing time once I came back from my crash I I couldn't kill time anymore I was like I don't have like we don't have that much time anyways so I want to use this time to do something else. And eventually the cultivation of skills, I started to prioritize that over going out and training. And my training became more of a meditation on exploration and going to new places. And I also do a bunch, was doing a bunch of graffiti on my rides. <laughs> on your rides? Yeah, I mean, it's the perfect way to do it. And it there's a, so many artists around here who have, they'll, they'll have a bunch of tags or whatever in Girona, but then it seems like they all get on their scooters together or something and like go around in the surrounding areas and they find all of these different places to make their art and make graffiti. And so being on, on my bike, I always had a, a handlebar bag or a frame bag or something. So I would bring these markers with me and that was like a way for me to stay sane while I was training as I could go and do some efforts and then I was like okay I found this really cool spot it's very oh like a reward of some kind yeah it's very quiet like I'm gonna just go and I you know you think a lot when you're riding so a lot of my art um around town was or around the surrounding areas like different things that I was thinking about um or just total like improvisations of the moment but it was a way to feel like okay I did something uh, that wasn't just going out and expending a bunch of energy, but I've like left my my mark here. And I never went and tagged on like a blank wall. You know, there's so much like terrible street art. And so I would find places that were really busy that people had just put like nasty. There's a bunch of Catalonian Republic like uh, freedom tags here that are really ugly. And so I would just kind of mess with those. I don't know you so well, but I can imagine you come from a very uh, commercialized world in a way where every light, I mean, I've noticed also with your former team and many that not only are they now portraying races, but also spirits and, you know, the culture and all of that. And I'm just wondering if this, I mean, if you, if I was part of that, I would say, well, there are parts of my life that. I don't want to be a brand. I, I'm just me, if you know what I mean. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I went to the Olympics for the first time just straight out of high school. Uh, I had just turned 18. The year leading up to that, I did a bunch of media training in the U.S. And 
also, you know, you become in contact with all of these different agents and all of these different things. And it's, it's all about like, you know, you're not just a person, you're a brand and you have to sell yourself like as if you're a brand. And so all of that actually came really easy to me. I was like, oh, I can do that. Like I can tell people what they want to hear and I can say the things that I feel like people want me to say. But ultimately that was one of the things that towards the end of my career, I was, I really just couldn't do anymore. Like I respect the fact that it's a business and a sponsor has to make money and you are a a marketing tool as an athlete for this business. But anytime I would actually say that, I would be like, you know, they would ask the riders, like, what do you think your role is? And I would be like, we are, we're a marketing team. Like, that's what modern athletes are. And they'd be like, no, 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 like, just be yourself, you know? And I'd be like, well, yeah, but then you send me this list of all of these things that you want me to say. So, like, that's marketing. And I get it. I understand. Like, I'm not confronting you about it. <laughs> I just don't want to do it anymore. I wasn't criticizing it, but I, I can imagine... I mean, there are certain things that you where it's your choice whether you want to be part of it or not, and it, it doesn't have to be a bad thing that that there's marketing and that's how the world works. But I can just imagine at some point you also just want to, you know, um, not be filmed and video filmed and podcasted. <laughs> yeah, well, I came to a point where I recognized that I just I didn't feel like I was in control of my personal narrative of like who who I was and who I was portraying myself to be to all of these different people who follow me. And I mean, I've gotten in trouble throughout my whole career for like posting the wrong things and saying the wrong things. And at first I would really, it would really affect me and bother me and I would get really frustrated. And then I just sort of stopped sharing things and just became like, I just, just use the platform for marketing because I saw it as part of my job. But recently, I was, um, just over the last couple of years, I became very disillusioned with that. And I just, if I'm following somebody, I don't, I want to know that I'm following them as for who they are and not for who they're trying to promote. And fortunately, I have, like I said, like a good foundation from my career to be able to step off and do something new I was like what's the point of putting all of this energy out and you know gaining all of these these finances if you don't take a step to do something else and if you especially if your heart you know is not entirely in what you're doing but on the other hand you could also argue that you have uh, inspired a lot of people to get on the bike and to see cycling as something attractive and you know humane um, and not ugly and machinery like you know for sure i mean i have received a lot of really generous messages from people since i retired just about their relationship with the bike and um, me having something to do with their spark of interest and what i really feel now that i'm excited about is to promote a kind of cycling that i wouldn't really be allowed to promote as a professional because as a professional you still need to keep up a facade certain facade of seriousness about the whole thing 
and it's like you're you're a competitor so you're like like yeah i love riding my bike but also i want to dominate people you know <laughs> and now i'm like well actually you can ride your bike and really enjoy it and it doesn't have to be this thing where you're trying to like make your best friend suffer as much as he possibly can like you don't have to create rifts between your friendships you can go out and you can pick a point and say let's go there and let's spend the night in some place that we've never been can we talk a little bit about your relationship to the bike today you also i saw um have a bike there's always pictures of bags on it so it's like you're going camping on your bike or something like that uh always i mean that that was my That was really the start of my year. I went down into to Arizona in January to meet up with um, a really, really great, genuine community of of bike packers and travelers who I just connect with really well. It's always been my thing. I've never, I mean, racing, sure, you want to have the lightest and the stiffest and the most aerodynamic bike. But just especially in the last couple of years, I was always like, I want to be prepared. Like, I want to. I want to feel safe when I'm riding my bike and I want to feel like, you know, I would go out on winter rides and I would bring like a change of clothes with me because I know halfway through a six hour ride, if you change your clothes, like you feel amazing when it's cold outside, change your undershirt. Like I haven't tried that though. It's a good tip. Yeah. Especially, especially in, in Denmark, man. Yeah. <laughs> and all it takes is like a little bit of thought and a little bit of infrastructure and the right kind of, um, equipment um now i'm riding with like these massive uh handlebar bags and stuff but the idea is that i can bring all of my cooking equipment i can bring all of my camping equipment tent like everything just in this big bag like the feeling of being self-sufficient when you're on your bike like that is uh that's what keeps you going ultimately and what allows you to reach places that you wouldn't be able to go Hi Taylor. Hi David. Um, we're standing atop San Patlari, which is not far from Banyoles. Which, for those people who know a bit of Drona, Banyoles is the town with the lake, about 20 k's away. And we just did a pretty—I just got my head kicked in actually riding up here. It's nice though, huh? Yeah, a bit of cardio post quarantine. Yeah, it's been good. I was thinking last night, Taylor, before I came, it was 13. Years ago, that I first met you, and we were riding up. Sit on this. Side. Yeah, uh, in Boulder, and you were what, eighteen? Yeah, I was still a baby. Yeah, I'm still a baby. Still a junior at heart. How old are you now? Uh, about to turn thirty. Yeah, so that's crazy. So I was thirty when I met you. Oh. Yeah, that's mad, huh? So the same age as as me then. It's been a pretty. It's been a roller coaster, hasn't it? Yeah, when I first started riding, I really loved mountain biking and being in nature and riding on the road was just like the most boring thing. Um, so I, at a young age, I was like, I didn't even really consider the sport that my parents did as like a, as an option for me. It was also just around too much. Like my, uh, my parents did bike camps and so we, I would help out with with those and do cornering clinics and like entertain people in their 30s and 40s uh, that were passionate about bike riding but 
it was never my thing as a as a young as a young kid and then uh what really hooked me into it was um was like winning and feeling that feeling of of winning and um and I really didn't like training I wasn't a big person I wasn't going out and putting in big miles but I I loved to race and I felt like I was more of a racer than a rider and then that flipped again like in my later years uh to where now I'm like a pure pure bike rider and just love the act of riding and have uh pretty much completely lost my racing desire I remember I was very much like that when I was young. I was a racer, not a, a trainer. I didn't really, I didn't social bike ride. I just did it for the racing. That was my love. And when, I guess the difference is, you've gone full reversal to kind of most people. They start social and they start in that kind of just riding around with mates and then maybe decide that, oh, I'm better than your tri races. Whereas you went straight into the racing and now you've come out the other side and you're a pure, it goes far as saying a purist in the sense that bike riding means something else to you now. It's a kind of, it's a state of meditation, it's a state of kind of form of escape, it's meeting different people, going to adventures, I guess kind of soul-searching, which is so far removed from the world we both inhabited for many years, and we were both very fortunate to be at the, the top of the game, where it is kind of, it is very much the top of the pyramid, but when you're up there, it's... It's a pretty weird and lonely and kind of not a very healthy place. And how have you managed to make that switch? Do you think it was kind of the process of after your, what for the majority of people would be a career-ending crash? Yeah, I definitely, I was on a pretty interesting path in terms of like, I, I spent the first couple of years of my career sort of knowing what I needed to do in order to be as successful as possible but I was never really willing to do all of those things and I mean like eat right uh, which means like eat very little and then um, train right and you know get on a sleeping schedule and all of that which in your early 20s is not the easiest thing to to do so I I, I sort of like finally committed to that schedule in uh, 2014 um, which was my fourth year as a pro um, had a really big, awesome victory in the Tour of California and then won the national championships and then uh, in the time trial and then the day later in the road race, I hit a guardrail going over 90k an hour um, and uh, just like sh- completely destroyed my left leg. Luckily, it wasn't my back or my head. Could have been a life, totally life ending, um, like mobility ending crash. From that moment going forward, everything everything changed. Um, it took it took a couple months for me to really like remove myself from the cycling in, environment and recognize that I was going to be out for for a long time. I was eventually out of the sport for a year and a half before I came back and started racing again. Really, in that time, I was able to to root down in into a community for really the first time in my adult life and I started to explore all of these different forms of expression and started to dive into um, yoga and meditation especially a little bit more and just became more curious about like this human experience and and what it's all about I, I felt really free even though I was 
mobily not not um doing so well uh with my leg i just felt like wow the world is totally opening up to me right now and it was stepping away from cycling that made me feel that way and then um you know i still had a lot of passion to like come back and and to to race again and i felt like once i once i did that and once i came back i was still like missing something like uh, it was like i i took a couple steps forward when i stepped away and then i it's like i took a step back when i came back into the sport and you know i've struggled with different bouts of depression through my career not even knowing that it was depression but being like 21 years old and moving to europe in in february and leaving my family behind and leaving my home behind and just being alone um in a pretty high stress like cutthroat um performance oriented environment and just feeling uh just alone but not knowing just thinking that was like how it was and how it was supposed to be so stepping away showed me that oh wait like that's actually not how life needs to be and there's a lot of fulfillment that comes from really simple things like sitting with yourself and not judging yourself and and understanding uh like what you the simple things that you can do to make yourself happy it's really interesting you say that because um athletes for sure pro cyclists for sure but probably most young people who are in that kind of high performance driven kind of uh, arena let's say and it's it's very much put under a magnifying glass in a pet tradition professional cycling because there are those extenuating circumstances like you move abroad you're in a very um strange professional environment which is very transient there are no fixed bases there is no kind of sense of tribe outside of the races you're very much on your own very judgmental as well hugely i'd say that you become very judgmental of yourself like you were just saying because everything becomes binary it's kind of it's success or failure it's everything's quantified and kind of more so than ever i guess now with the fact that your trainings are monitored live your weight your the results the the points the salary the contract the team you're on and you become very um judgmental of yourself in the sense that you can only be good or bad and it's a, it's a pretty big awakening i think and if you to have done that when you were 20 24 it's then what was it like kind of the living with that afterwards with that awakening yeah it took about five years for that awakening to manifest into a life change but within that period when i stepped away from the sport I discovered painting and I sort of realized that if I just worked at something that I wanted to work at that I could get better at it which was like a somehow it was like a novel concept to me at the time Um, I think because I started racing and I was just good at it immediately so I just thought like okay if you're good at something you're just good at it and if you're not good at it then you can't be good at it Um, So I always wanted to play music and I always wanted to play the piano and express myself musically, but I would sit down at a piano and I wouldn't really know what to do. So then I just assumed that I couldn't do it. It was the really painting opened up the, the door for me to recognize, like you said, coming from a binary world of like success, failure. When I started painting, I was like, oh, wow, like this actually there's no result attached to this that's it because for, for me art was something that was my 
my other thing when I was a teenager, and actually ever since I was a kid, it was, I was drawing. It was my kind of escape. I just draw, and and I was. I, people would say, "Oh, you're really good at it," but I was. I'm really good at drawing. I'm not really good at art, and I could kind of almost draw anything, but I could never let go, and kind of actually just do something. It had to look exactly how I saw it. And it's only now, as I'm kind of, and I've been very adamant with my kids when they're kind of drawing, is don't worry about going outside the lines, you know, because it's very easy to get into that where you're so precise, making sure you're doing everything just right. And that's actually not art. That's you being confined by the rules. And very much, I think, art is something that you do, you learn, and you have to learn to to go outside the line. And there's a sort of metaphor in that, in the fact that it takes a lot of courage to do that, and it takes a lot of self-awareness and to stop being kind of considered judged. And then you have to kind of stick at it. I can't draw anything. Like, I, I mean, I still, I still can't. I can, but, but not really. When I started making art, my mom brought me all of these uh, drawings that I'd done as a child, and they were all really cool and super abstract and weird. And then I just kind of recognized, like, Man, if I could make something like that now, then that's what I that's what I'd like to see. And I I figured that the whole refinement process would come over time. I actually have a little project in Girona with my friend David, who's a designer who's who has grown up, you know, living very much inside of this box, but is very talented. So I bring that element of like, you know, screw it, and then chaos and then he brings the element of refinement and we sort of like go back and forth to where he lets himself go a little bit more and then I am a little bit more calculated is that kind of I suppose actually it's quite a good um comparison to to kind of pro racing and the sort of riding you do now where pro racing is so confined you know it is like design there's a it's actually designed there's a start line there's a finish line there's barriers mm-hmm. there are essentially rules it's all structured. It's all structured. Numerical. But the sort of cycling you're doing now, I mean, your bikes are always, they're equipped to kind of survival, basically. You know, you've got enough, even on this, your sick downhill bike here, you've got bags on it and you've got resources. and got my pooper scooper. you got your pooper scooper. <laughs> you got tools, you got paint. and uh, But it's that, that idea where there is that, because there are so many t- different genres in cycling. Too many, so many different tribes, and I kind of, I think it's a good thing and a bad thing because I think it does. Those tribes can often lead to snobbery, and kind of, and again, ironically, go into judgmentalism because it's either you're either with or or you're against. I kind of, I'm hoping that with cycling at the moment, it's you can start to to morph them in, all into one, and just being a cyclist is represents something. Something that I really wanted to do that I'm doing right now that's sort of my project is to cross blend all of these different things that I like about cycling into these different bike projects to just show people like you know if you want to do gravel quote-unquote gravel like a gravel bike can look like whatever you want it to look like I was riding on gravel roads dirt roads on my road bike with like 23 25 millimeter tires for my whole career like i loved doing that and i didn't even know that you could put big tires on there that's the thing i remember back there with michael barry where you just like 
10 plus years ago, we'd just be on our road bikes on all the gravel trails around here. We just thought it was bike riding. Granted, it's a lot better now on gravel bikes, but... Oh, it's way better. I mean, have you seen on um, uh, on Instagram, there's a great book, The Rough Stuff Fellowship. Oh, I'll show you after this. It's oh, mm, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's basically... The old school pictures of the... Yeah, and it's beautiful. It's basically, packers, it's, yeah. it's kind of what that scene is now. And it's yeah. with history repeating. And, you know, when you're seeing the stuff they're doing, a lot of the time... What is it? Because a lot of the time they're just pushing their bikes. Mostly their hiking, bikes, yeah. yeah, but mostly <laughs> hiking, and their bikes are like donkeys with their bags on them. Yeah, I never go for a, I never go for a walk without my bike. And it's, uh, yeah, I'll show you it afterwards. But it's that kind of scene where it's, you want to be able to turn up to a cafe or ride by and see somebody, and not kind of not want to. The amount of times you go to a cafe and see some roadies there, or some triathletes, or some mountain bikers, and they consider themselves to be completely different people. Yeah, and it's like it's like, come on, man! And it's or you turn up on a on a Brompton a folding bike, and they're just like you're the laughing stock. And it's well, you were talking about on the ride up here. Well, before I couldn't talk or listen because I was breathing so hard um, about that group and about the kind of the bikes you're building and and your kind of this quest now to build your well, you you have an apocalypse bike as we called it. Can you describe what an apocalypse bike is? An apocalypse bike is essentially a bicycle that can handle any kind of terrain and you can fix it yourself on the fly. This word gets thrown around a lot. I love this word, analog. <laughs> so I'm talking about an analog bike in terms of like mechanical shifting, um, mechanical brakes, like brakes with cables, no hydraulic fluid. And then... I've really developed a a serious affinity for steel bikes and the way that they feel. I've ridden carbon bikes basically my whole life. And, uh, I mean, they're they're great if you're trying to, like, smash a criterium and you want to be, like, ultra fast. But they don't exactly age with you in the sense that, like, like your favorite pair of jeans ages with you. I think one of the main things that allows bikepacking to be pleasurable is confidence in your equipment and knowing that you can fix things, anything that could go wrong and really understanding like how your bike works. And I mean, I come from a, from an environment where I've, and you do too, where we would, would just have everything taken care of for us. And you're always riding the highest, like the next thing and like these prototype things and all of this stuff that sponsors want to sell. Um, but nobody tells you like how to work it. Nobody tells you how to maintain it. You have all these people that do that. So then you can spend, you know, 10, 15 years as a pro and then come out the other side and not have any clue of like how bikes work and, um, really just simplifying. It's all really about minim minimalizing, um, and simplifying things to their basic analog forms and then um, just spending a little bit of time to learn how to work that and fix that. All right, cool. Thanks, Taylor. We'll go down the hill and uh, I'll follow you and let you go and see you at the bottom and uh, we'll speak to Mikel later. Right here. Thanks, man. Cool. Can I ask you, um, I've talked to David quite a bit of about this because I haven't really gotten the answer because I'm trying to figure out when you 
race at the level you did, how do you sense bike riding? Like, how do you do you see where you're going? Do you or do you are you just focused on your muscles, your energy, your eating, the competition, or, or because I, I guess that you must have pretty good sensory, you're equipped quite well with, you know, looking at things and seeing the world. No, when you raced professionally, like, did you, how did you experience that, like, on, on in, in a race? Did you um, see it as a pure competition or did you actually enjoy it? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So bike racing is always changing, like, um sports are sports are always evolving and usually evolving in the sense that they're getting faster and um they're in more difficult for the athletes um when i when i started there was there was a lot more camaraderie within the group and there was a lot more um of this sort of unspoken structure to the way that the races were so there was a lot more time for like chit chat basically there was more time to be you're in a group and you get to spend some time with the people that you that are your friends that maybe race on the same team or other other teams and you can sit at the back I mean like David was I would find David at the back a lot and we would just you know, you could just sort of like cruise through. And then once it came time to race towards, because the races are like four or five, six hours long, you know, um, when I started, you couldn't, it, it felt like very rarely did you race the whole time. And then as the sport has evolved and grown, um, it's become way less social, which is funny to think that a sport would is social anyways, but <laughs> that's just the nature of cycling, right? There's something social about it. And um and so there were way, way less days where uh you you really enjoyed like that community aspect of it and it just became like pure competition. So um that that is nice in its own way for a certain flow state and for sure you um, you know, you spend all of that time, like you said, feeling your body. It's so much of the conversation is, is like, do I feel good? Uh, no. And then you're like, <laughs> okay, now I feel yeah. good. And then maybe like a minute later, you're like, oh, I feel, sh I feel bad again. And then you're just going back and forth, like drive, essentially just driving yourself insane. It, but it's it's very. I was uh, talking to um, Alec, who's I don't know if you know him, but he's uh, like a Criterion racer that super fast and he's very skilled on his bike. And he talked about revolutionizing cycling. And then I asked him if, if I take my glasses and sort of put them outside the strap of the helmet, would that be okay with you? And he said, absolutely not. Uh, or, or or was it the other way around? I can't remember. But all these super strange rules that you I mean you're not supposed to do this and you can't wear white socks with something else and do, do you do you notice those things or are they just part of you or, or, or are you against them or how, how do you feel about them I have this inherent uh, need to challenge almost everything especially if it's a rule so like right now I ride gravel or like my my mountain bike shoes are hiking boots with Oh, with cool. SPD on the bottom 
like yeah i definitely went through a phase where i was like yeah i need like white shoes white socks and like matching white oakley's with like green well i guess i have this right now but (laughs) there's like you know everything has to be like you know i have to be like super euro bro but then i recognize that practicality is actually king and that if you're in a scenario where you're like have to spend the night somewhere doesn't matter what color your socks are (laughs) (laughs) i'm finding now that i spend a lot of time in clothes that i haven't washed (laughs) and so i'm more interested in things that like really don't smell bad over (laughs) over the course of time okay yeah that's a new dimension yeah just i'm (laughs) just uh i'm more i'm more practical about it but i know that people like to have there's all these rules i remember when those weird like euro rules were written like that you're it's like something there's something italian about it you know like italians won't have cappuccinos after 10 a.m like it's just not you can't i mean they'll make it for you but they're gonna like frown at you and be sad about it so there's something in cycling that's sort of like along that thing like you can't do this but right now my whole mission is just to make every single person feel like they are invited into this community and no matter what they're wearing uh, or how they ride their bike if they're enjoying it if they have their own unique style like i really want to encourage people to have their own style and to be that to be themselves great it was um fantastic meeting you yeah nice to meet you man and um where where do you think i'm just the last thing where do you think you are in five years There's one thing that I learned about this quarantine experience. It's that uh, if there is ever going to be another quarantine, I really want to be in like it's I feel like it's time for me to to start rooting down into more of a natural environment and not living, not living in an apartment um, in a city. It's just hard for me to decide if I want to live in the mountains or if I want to live near the ocean. Uh, if I think about the next 10 years, I want to spend 10 years cultivating my passion um, and cultivating my skills for my artistic expression through painting and music in a pretty isolated, secluded um, environment while also being able to you know, explore my physical realm with with bikes and go on trips and stuff so good luck with that and i'm certainly gonna follow you cool thanks man uh, and see what happens so david this was taylor finney and i just have to ask you isn't he just a lovely person you know what he really is and he's he kind of there's very few professional cyclists or actually people i know that have have managed to find their way the kind of their dao the kind of their zen and taylor finney really does seem uh, on the right direction to find his way and at first i'll be honest a couple of years ago i was like what's happened to taylor finney he was this such alpha athlete and uh kind of almost kind of grecian in his ability to do different things and he's very big for a cyclist as well and, and just riding with him when i was mountain biking just a, a footnote as well because we didn't conclude that uh, that was the first time i rode a mountain bike with taylor finney 
And I concluded my interview with us then dropping off that hill, going back down. And yeah, I think I fractured a rib because I crashed. But it's, uh, he's so good. And he's just so effortless as an athlete. And, and, you know, there's a part of you that kind of could say, a lot of people would have said, oh, you've just thrown it away. You've given up. Whereas actually, I think it's the complete opposite. I think he'll always have that and he'll treasure it and he'll use it and he'll and he'll take joy from it. But he's now going to kind of allow himself to grow with it rather than allow it to dominate him. And I think that's... Yeah, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't really be cheated by his interest in, in art. He is still, behind it all, a pretty fit, like natural-born athlete, isn't he? Uh, completely, completely, Mikhail. That's it. It's like kind of he can sort of perhaps... Uh, talk himself down a bit but the dude still the creep can roll i mean he's a he's a proper alpha athlete inbred pedigree genetically predisposed to be like that and if if david miller says that you know i know that then that's a fact of life <laughs> yeah there's another thing because you know much more about this than i do his what do you think about his views on art i think he was a very um i mean he's also a very, how can I say, deep person in the sense that he doesn't claim to be an artist. He doesn't claim that he's good. He talks about art as a journey, where which he un- uses to understand and reflect on the world he experiences. And that's a very, very good way to think about art. I mean, real artists, I think, don't brag much. They do their art and they always see imperfection in it. And he very much reflected that, yeah. And, and I suppose off that is that kind of, I think one of the things he likes about it is the fact there's no, there's no commercialization to it. Because I think that was something he found uncomfortable. And I think he found it uncomfortable being a brand. Yes. I mean, it's one of those strange persons you meet that, I mean, he's not anti-commercial. I don't think he is against that. But just he doesn't want to t- have his soul taken away from over-commercialization, which I think probably has happened in a lot of cycling teams, that it becomes too much about you and your lifestyle and Instagram and Twitter and movies. And and I don't think he sees himself as a brand. That's my reading. He sees himself as a, a person that, you know, lives in this world and has a decent sense of privacy and, you know, self-discovery and doesn't want to become a stigmatized you know, version of himself, and um, I, I, and I, you know, I, I really appreciate that. He another thing is just talking to him felt a little bit like sitting on a campfire. It, it really did. Like I felt like sitting, you know, with a cup of tea in my hand in after you know, a ride in the night and just talking to a person, and it felt very, very quickly, very sincere, which is a rare thing. But he has this calmness, and also when you. You can hear it, but when you talk to him, he's reflecting before he talks, um, which I think is something really wonderful. Yeah, I agree. And so I hope everybody enjoyed that because uh, it's it's a side of Taylor I'd seen, and from the outside it can seem like one thing, and then you get to know him, and I hope uh, Mikael and I talking to him has helped you know him better as it did for us because... If anybody's worth knowing, it's Taylor Finney.